The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Can the latest gun massacre change anything? This is Thursday, October 5th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening, for diving in, and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. Republican Congressman Steve Scalise got an emotional welcome back on the floor of the House after nearly being killed by a gunman in an attack at a congressional baseball practice three months ago. House Speaker Paul Ryan was in tears of joy as he welcomed back his Republican colleague. They had both voted earlier this year to make it easier for those who are court-certified mentally ill to buy guns. On 60 Minutes, Scalise would say he still doesn't regret his vote on guns and the mentally ill. The successful real estate investor who killed 58 people and then himself was able to buy 33 of his 47 guns just in the past year. He'd actually started collecting them in 1982, but just in the past year he bought 33 and no bells went off. He had amassed a collection of ammunition clips loaded with 60 to 100 rounds each. He'd also purchased a dozen bump fire stocks to make his rifles fire like automatic weapons, like machine guns, and no bells went off. There is nothing in our system to alert the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives that a man is stockpiling weapons of mass carnage because there is no law requiring it. The result is weapons that can kill a lot of people very quickly, just as the real estate guy killed 58 over the weekend in Las Vegas. The Las Vegas shooter killed at the rate of about six people per minute. Not wounded six a minute, killed six people a minute. He wounded nearly four dozen people per minute. 58 of whom died with weapons he could buy legally under the laws written by our Congresses. And until that moment, no bells went off. The motive, days later, remains a mystery. They haven't found the shooter on social media. He apparently wasn't mentally ill. He was not on the radar of law enforcement. He gambled, but there doesn't appear to be a substance abuse problem. He reportedly had no strong religious or political views and no ties to terrorism. He was successful. He doted on his girlfriend, who says... He sent her out of the country and wired her $100,000 to buy a house before the shooting. But she says she thought the airline tickets and the cash were a way of breaking up with her, that she knew nothing about a mass killing that was carefully planned for a long time. The FBI says she's been cooperative and has volunteered publicly to, quote, help ease suffering and help in any way I can. She flew back from the U.S. from her native Philippines voluntarily to be interviewed by the feds. There were countless heroes that night in Las Vegas. The crowd was already loaded with first responders, cops, firefighters, and EMTs who were outside Mandalay Bay to hear some country music. Those who didn't become victims were suddenly back on duty. Civilians, cab drivers, and other passers-by became rescuers. People from miles around stood in line, some for eight hours, for a chance to donate blood to the nearly 500 injured. Restaurants donated food. A theater showed free movies to escape the horror and the shock and the grief. The level of humanity rose to the challenge of a tremendous tragedy. And then began the too familiar debate over how we, as a civilized society, can allow a mass murder of this magnitude. How can we make it harder to get or recreate weapons of mass execution? How can we prevent the deaths of 58 people in roughly 10 minutes? Or can we do anything at all? In recent years, the answer appeared to be no. If nothing would change after the mass gun slaughter of little school kids after Connecticut, would it ever change? 
The subject barely came up after the Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando. It would seem odd that nothing has been done to keep someone from collecting guns and ammo and devices to make them all fire faster at a rate far beyond what the authors of the Second Amendment could have ever imagined. It's odd because an average of reliable public opinion polls from the first half of this year, 90% of Americans favor background checks on all gun sales, including those sold at gun shows and on the Internet. 90%. That's gun owners and non-gun owners. That's Republicans and Democrats. That's everybody. And when is the last time 90% of Americans agreed on anything? What then is standing in the way of laws that could delay or discourage mass killings? It would have been the NRA of the mid-1930s, after the infamous Valentine's Day massacre that killed and shocked the world with the deaths of seven people at once who'd found themselves on the wrong end of Tommy guns. It was after that that the first gun control laws appeared with the help of a National Rifle Association that back then was concerned about violence and remained concerned until the mid-1960s. It was toward the late 60s that President Lyndon Johnson was among the first to call out the new NRA as the gun lobby that doesn't speak for the vast majority of Americans. In the decades since, the NRA has represented the gun makers more than the gun owners and works against the wishes of gun owners. The 74% of NRA members who also favor universal background checks These days, the NRA threatens to back the opposition of any candidate who dare try to weaken its grip on the nation's gun policy. After the massacre at an outdoor country music fest in Vegas, a member of one of the bands performing there has changed his politics on guns. I've been a proponent of the Second Amendment my entire life until the events of last night, wrote Caleb Keeter of the Josh Abbott Band. He wrote on Twitter, I cannot express how wrong I was. He said the band's crew had licensed guns on its bus but didn't grab them that night, quote, for fear police might think we were part of the massacre and shoot us. It is fair to say there is considerable overlap between country music fans and gun owners. This time it was country music fans who were most of the victims in our latest uniquely American mass murder. In a country that overwhelmingly favors universal background checks and after Las Vegas may be open to restricting the sale of those bump fire stocks. A few congressional Republicans are starting to speak out against the sale of bump stocks, along, of course, with many Democrats. Democrats in the House are demanding new gun controls, just as the NRA had demanded in the 1930s after a deadly mass shooting. In the Senate, Democrats are trying to close the loophole that says a person can go ahead and buy a gun without a federal okay if their background check isn't completed in 72 hours. But the Republicans who run the House and Senate say none of these things will happen. House Speaker Paul Ryan says he has no plans to bring a gun control bill to a vote anytime soon. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says it's not appropriate to politicize the Las Vegas massacre. But Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal says the reason we don't have gun safety measures today is the National Rifle Association. And he added, we will defeat them. Republicans have, for now, withdrawn their plans to vote soon on a bill that would have made it easier to buy gun silencers, which would have made it harder for police to pinpoint the Las Vegas shooter. This makes the second postponement of that bill. The first postponement was right after Congressman Steve Scalise and others were wounded at that baseball practice. 
Republicans have also now postponed a vote on a bill that would free up the sale of armor-piercing bullets, also known as cop killers. And top Senate Republicans now say they'd be open to banning those bump stocks. Let me say that again. Top Senate Republicans now say they would be open to banning those bump stocks. Among them, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, a lifelong hunter. Lindsey Graham, Orrin Hatch, and Marco Rubio say they'd be open to that, and they're asking for a hearing. Republicans in the House are speaking up as well against gun modifiers that make mass murder so much easier. For a generation, Republicans have sided with the NRA. Could this time be different? Nothing changed after Newtown, but this time feels different. It was late July. Donald Trump had just spoken for 35 rambling minutes about at least two dozen cringeworthy things to the Boy Scout Jamboree. Among other things, he'd badmouthed Washington, the free press, and two of his own cabinet secretaries, Price and Sessions. A former Eagle Scout and once president of the BSA, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was in Texas at the time attending his son's wedding. When he heard what Trump had done, Tillerson, according to NBC News, threatened to quit on the spot and to not even return to Washington. Defense Secretary James Madison, soon-to-be White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, reportedly talked Tillerson off that ledge, begged him to stay. Tillerson agreed, but insisted on taking a little time off. Having had his own run-ins with Trump over policy, Tillerson had earlier met at the Pentagon with other cabinet officials and members of Trump's national security team. That, reports NBC, is when Tillerson, who was again reportedly thinking about quitting, referred to Trump as, quote, an effing moron. Dictionary definitions for moron include a stupid person, an idiot, an ass, a dunce, an ignoramus, an imbecile, a cretin, a dullard, and a simpleton. NBC News says Vice President Mike Pence and other top administration officials talked Tillerson into staying, at least until the end of the year, especially in the midst of 19 other White House firings and resignations. Pence reportedly negotiated a peace between Trump and Tillerson, but insiders say Tillerson's still unhappy, especially after the president told him he's wasting his time on North Korea and told him that publicly through Twitter. Tillerson calls the NBC report petty, but he does not deny calling the commander-in-chief a moron. He does deny he considered resigning and that Vice President Pence had to talk him out of it. Trump, meanwhile, says NBC is fake news, even more dishonest, he says, than CNN. Trump said NBC should apologize because he says Tillerson has refuted the network's report. And Tillerson had refuted some of the story, just not the moron part. Because that omission was noticed... The State Department, an hour or so later, issued a statement saying Tillerson had not called Trump a moron. NBC News says it stands by its story. Often, when Trump paddles in one direction, other top administration officials are paddling in the opposite direction. The Iran nuclear deal is a prime and immediate example. That Iran deal is the crown jewel among Obama's foreign policy accomplishment. But to Donald Trump and most Republicans in Congress, it's an embarrassment. Trump's threatened repeatedly to pull out of that agreement. But officials in his own administration say Iran is holding up its end of the bargain and that it's really not a bad deal at all. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis told the Senate Armed Services Committee this week he believes it's in the best interest of U.S. national security to stay in the agreement. It is, he added, something the president should consider staying with. And Mattis is no fan of Iran. 
Polls show a solid majority of Americans also think the U.S. should stick to its agreement with Iran. There is a deadline 10 days from now for the White House to say if Iran is holding up its end of the deal. Trump's been saying they haven't in spirit. Technically, yes, but not in spirit. We'll be watching this. Although, like so many other things, the president has called it fake news, it isn't fake news. It isn't a hoax, as Trump has also claimed. It isn't something dreamed up by Democrats or the intelligence community or journalists. It's real. Senate investigators have found that Russia was and is attacking the U.S. election system and worked to elect Trump. The same conclusion reached by 17 U.S. intelligence agencies. They also want you to be alarmed that Trump has refused to admit that there is or was any such attack. In an update, Senate investigators reported they have interviewed 100 witnesses over 250 hours, along with conducting 11 hearings. They've poured over 100,000 pages of documents and 4,000 pages of transcripts. The Senate Intelligence Committee thought it was time the public be updated on its investigation into whether there'd been a Russian attack, whether the Trump campaign had any part in it, and whether there's been an attempt to obstruct any of the four Russia investigations underway. Normally, you start running out of new information, and that's not the case, says one committee member. We're months and months into this, he says, and we keep finding plenty more stuff to look into. And there is so much new information, a lot of it just in the past week. Committee co-chairman Mark Warner says there's no way they can have the rest of the investigation wrapped up by the end of this year with all this new stuff continuing to pour in. He says they're still investigating a meeting in Trump Tower in June between more than a half dozen Russians and Trump's son, Trump's son-in-law, and Trump's campaign manager, who's now facing indictment. Not by the end of the year, says Warner, in time for the midterm election campaigns next year, maybe. The Intelligence Committee leaders say they intend to keep investigating possible collusion and possible obstruction over the next few months. They say they want to know why it took Trump's Homeland Security Department 11 months to reveal which 21 states had been targeted by Russian hackers. The Senate Intelligence Committee has also tasked itself with making recommendations to avoid such election interference in the future. Increasingly, the biggest element of the Russian attack appears to be social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Facebook can now put another number on it. Its internal investigation, now that it's taking this seriously, finds that those 3,000 ads purchased by Russian trolls aimed at dividing the voters reached 10 million people, about the population of the state of Michigan. About a fourth of those ads were targeted to specific voting districts and specific demographics. Those Russian posts set off angry debate in the U.S. on issues including gay rights, minority rights, gun rights, and immigration. The Facebook ads were focused not on the candidates in the presidential election, but on pushing hot-button issues that might sway voters to favor Trump. The Russians were pushing hot buttons in a nation already divided. The Russians fanned the flames at every turn. And speaking of Michigan, some of those 3,000 Russian ads disguised as news articles specifically targeted Michigan and Wisconsin, two of the states crucial to Trump's electoral college victory. In Michigan, Trump won by 10,000 votes out of nearly 5 million cast. They were targeted with anti-Muslim ads while Trump was proposing a Muslim ban. Yet to be answered is how the Russians knew which parts of the U.S., which voting districts to target. Over at Twitter, 
They've found that over 200 of the user accounts there were Russian trolls or Russian bots. A Kremlin propaganda service spent well over a quarter million dollars on Twitter ads last year with nearly 2,000 political tweets. Like Facebook, Twitter has suspended those accounts. But the Senate Intelligence Committee's ranking Democrat Mark Warner called Twitter's response to the attack and to the committee's request for information deeply disappointing. The 200 accounts that Twitter reported are linked to some of the 400 Facebook accounts, and Twitter had only produced those overlapped accounts without reporting on how many Russian bots and trolls had been tweeting that were not linked to Facebook accounts. In other words, Twitter put very little effort into its probe and showed up to testify pretty much empty-handed. That's especially disturbing since the Twitter ads were more candidate-oriented, with a focus on specifically attacking Hillary Clinton with false claims about her health and a supposed pizza parlor pedophile ring and more. But like Facebook and now Google, Twitter executives seem to be finally taking this seriously and beginning to cooperate more. Quoting Republican Susan Collins of Maine, it's clear that Facebook, Google, and Twitter must do a better job of disclosing where ads come from, helping us with enforcing the law that prohibits foreign governments from making contributions to political campaigns, which ads essentially are. The two most damning developments in the Russian story this past week involved Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner, and also the revelation there were even more contacts than we knew between Russia and the Trump campaign. Donald Trump's business associates have now turned over to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigators documents that show two more previously unreported contacts. In one of those contacts, Trump's personal attorney and one of Trump's business associates exchanged emails weeks before the Republican National Convention. They were about the lawyer maybe traveling to Russia for an economic conference that would include Vladimir Putin. The other previously unrevealed contact involved that same Trump lawyer, Michael Cohen, and a company founded by a billionaire in the Russian government. It was in July of last year, during the campaign, Trump declared, For the record, I have zero investments in Russia. For the record, that's just another Trump lie. We now know there have been too many contacts to be coincidence. We now know that in 2016, in that election year, Trump's company was still pursuing building a Trump Tower in Moscow. New documents show the Trump organization was still listening to pitches for a Moscow project, even while the campaign was well underway. We know that campaign chairman Paul Manafort had offered private briefings to a Russian oligarch in the final weeks of the campaign. And then there's Jared. We now know that the personal email account he used for government business is something he didn't bother to mention when he was interviewed by the staff of the Senate Intelligence Committee. It's yet another thing Kushner didn't disclose, and the committee leaders are very, very unhappy to now learn that Kushner kept this from them. They are now demanding every email from his personal email account and other email accounts he may have, any messaging apps he may have, or anything upon which he might have communicated with anyone. By going that far in their demand, the committee leaders make it clear they are not happy about Kushner not mentioning certain things. Kushner also did not disclose over 100 contacts with foreign leaders, including Russians. He did not disclose his ownership of a tech company tied to Goldman Sachs. And most suspiciously, Kushner didn't disclose that June meeting with Kremlin representatives in Trump Tower. Senate investigators have now gone to work to pry that information out of him. And then there are those who would try to stop 
the Russia investigation. Politico says pro-Trump Republicans are angry with the party's leadership for letting the investigations go this far. The Trump administration is also fighting back. Trump's Justice Department lawyers are now demanding private account information on thousands of Facebook users who are, quote, anti-administration activists. That includes those who've spoken at events, but also those who are, quote, generally critical of this administration's policies. Trump's Justice Department has issued three separate search warrants to Facebook to get that data. The targets include Facebook activists with 5,000 followers or more, which would, in theory, qualify this newscast. Facebook, which fiercely defends the privacy of its users, has spent seven months in court just so it could notify three particular users that government lawyers have demanded their personal info. As reported here before, those three users, with the ACLU's help, have asked the court to quash the search warrants, which are generally seen as an attempt to intimidate and silence those who would speak against this president in a society based on free speech. About half of us disapprove of the way Trump has handled the hurricane relief effort in Puerto Rico despite the claims he's made and the high marks he's given himself. And fewer than one in three of us approve of Trump's handling of Puerto Rico. Fewer than one in three. After a great focus on hurricane victims in Texas and Florida, Trump simply tweeted that Puerto Rico be careful as Maria rolled in. During that terrifying weekend, Trump instead tweeted about NFL players. It took him how long to get to Puerto Rico, asked one of the people polled. She suspects Trump, quote, didn't even know Puerto Rico was an island that's part of America, adding, it's embarrassing. It wasn't until a week later, a week in which a Puerto Rican mayor begged for help with the words, we are dying, that Trump finally started to pay attention. The mayor had blamed inefficiency and bureaucracy and a lack of leadership, adding, I'm mad as hell between her bouts of wading through contaminated water to help rescue her people. It was then that Trump accused the mayor of turning political. Told by the Democrats, said Trump, you must be nasty to Trump. Because when people are dying, it's all about him, as he again spoke of himself in third person. Trump accused San Juan Mayor Carmen Cruz of poor leadership and accused Puerto Ricans of, quote, wanting everything done for them, as he again praised his administration's response. He explained that Puerto Rico is in the middle of a big ocean. And he slammed Puerto Rico for its financial difficulties at a time its people were struggling to stay alive without medicine, food, water, electricity, or communication. And finally on Tuesday, Trump flew into Puerto Rico where he told them they should be proud of having only 16 casualties compared to the Hurricane Katrina, which he called a real catastrophe, as if what had happened in Puerto Rico wasn't so bad. Shortly after Trump left, the death toll more than doubled in Puerto Rico to 34. His tour included a stop that allowed him to be photographed throwing rolls of paper towels into a crowd. He teased the suffering Puerto Rico about throwing the U.S. budget, quote, a little out of whack. And although Trump was personally curt and cold to the mayor of San Juan, she later told reporters the White House staffers had explained to her that Trump's style of communications, quote, sometimes gets in the way. That's Trump's staff. For what seemed like an eternity to millions of Americans in Puerto Rico, the federal response was weak, especially at the time without any military involvement. That last part's finally begun to change. 
After much criticism, real federal help finally began to arrive, and by yesterday, things were starting to improve a bit. And Trump was even promising to help wipe out Puerto Rico's crushing debt. He's also now asked Congress for nearly $30 million, half to cover the debt, the rest for disaster relief. It isn't enough for either cause. But 90% of Puerto Rico still has no power and 80% still has no cell phone service. Entire areas remain cut off from food and medicine and water. Flood contamination means the death toll will keep rising. Will Puerto Rico be Trump's Katrina? Judging from the public opinion polls, it might be. The Trump tax plan for Trump's taxes. Bob Seska on the latest abortion bill. The latest on the Cuban mystery and more after this. The coming of autumn is a great time to start bringing life and color into your home. It's time to embrace the season. And I'll bet you know someone who's in love with everything from fall colors to pumpkin spice that's why it's a perfect time to go to proflowers.com and check out their best-selling Cinnamon Cider Roses, a long-lasting bouquet that's perfect for any occasion this fall. Or check out their 100 autumn blooms or even a dozen of their autumn roses. And if you choose any one of these items for $29 or more, Pro Flowers will take 20% off the price just because you heard about it here. 20%. The fall bouquet they set here is absolutely breathtaking. Remember, Pro Flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. And as always, you pick the delivery date. Pro Flowers gives you more bloom for your buck. Big, beautiful flowers with long, healthy stems. Again, get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more when you go to proflowers.com and use our code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M in the discount code box when you check out at proflowers.com. Thanks for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. The best news about the Trump publican tax plan is for Donald Trump. Despite his public proclamation that his tax plan would hurt him and other wealthy Americans, a New York Times analysis found it could save Trump more than $1.1 billion in the first year. And that's just from the part of the plan that repeals the estate tax. The Times projection is based on the one tax return that leaked out against Trump's wishes. Unlike other modern presidents, he still hides the rest of his tax returns. The projection is based on that 2005 return and a Bloomberg estimate of Trump's net worth of nearly $3 billion. In announcing his tax plan, Trump said, I don't benefit. He said that twice for emphasis. Then, using vaguer terms, Trump said, in fact, very, very strongly, as you see, I think there's very little benefit for people of wealth. $1.1 billion in a year, says the Times, which reports high-income earners like Trump benefit and benefit disproportionately. His plan would also repeal the alternative minimum tax, which currently keeps the richest among us from using deductions to pay little or no federal tax. Ditching that tax would save Trump $31 million. His plan would lower business income tax to 25%, which would save Trump $16 million. And by cutting the highest tax rate, Trump would save another half million dollars for good measure. Trump would lose 3 to $5 million on deductions to be eliminated under his plan, but the rest more than makes up for that loss for Trump. Now, Republicans are also admitting that some middle-class Americans might pay higher taxes, even though Trump unveiled this as a tax break for the middle class that would stimulate the economy. 
This is not politics talking. This is math, nonpartisan math. The nonpartisan tax policy center says the Trump publican plan, the tax plan would benefit corporations and the rich more than the middle class, more than anyone. The center's report says middle class taxes would go up by six or seven hundred dollars a year, while families making nearly three quarters of a million dollars a year or more get tax savings totaling well over one hundred twenty thousand dollars. Democrats oppose all of this and not just because they were kept out of the process of developing this plan. And now the Senate Budget Committee has unveiled its 2017 budget resolution that would allow the Republican plan to go to a floor vote without the Democrats. Former Health Secretary Tom Price is the 19th key person to exit the Trump administration in the last eight months and the second to resign under a cloud of corruption, if you don't count Mike Flynn. But Price merely jumped out of the frying pan he'd created with lavish travel at your expense and into the fire he started back in Congress. Price was confirmed by a Republican Senate that didn't seem to care that he'd traded a third of a million dollars in health care stock while sponsoring legislation that would make those stocks, his stocks, make more money. One reason Price squeaked through, aside from pressure from Trump to confirm his nominations, is that Price fibbed about the value of his health care stocks on his disclosure forms and in his testimony before a confirmation committee. Government ethics lawyers found Price's behavior worthy of investigation by financial regulators in the House Ethics Committee. But Republicans confirmed Price anyway. Price has since resigned after we learned how much taxpayer money he'd spent as Trump's health secretary. He'd spent nearly a half million dollars on the watch of a president who'd promised to drain the swamp and cut government spending. I'm not happy, Trump said to reporters. Price offered to pay back what he feels is his share of that $400,000 travel bill. Trying to avoid losing his job, Price offered to refund $50,000 for the flights on private jets he'd chartered for himself and others. Trump seemed to indicate that a refund was unacceptable even if it were refunded in full. Trump, you see, is also unhappy that Price, his point man on repealing Obamacare, failed on that front. And then Tom Price was out. Trump explained Price's departure, saying, I was disappointed because I didn't like it, cosmetically or otherwise. And while Price is now off the hook for his lavish travel, he's back to facing ethics violations as both an investor and a lawmaker. And through it all, the lavish travel of other Trump officials came to light. It's an administration described accurately by the New York Times as being, quote, stocked by billionaires accustomed to using private jets, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke's been under scrutiny for using private jets, even for non-public business. Zinke lets oil and gas companies provide his private planes while giving the oil and gas companies exploration rights on public land. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, aside from having 18 security people protecting him 24-7, spent 58000 of tax money on chartered and military flights. The Veterans Affairs Administrator David Shulkin took his wife to Europe for 10 days for a little business and several days of pleasure. The Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin used a 25 grand an hour military plane for his honeymoon to Europe and then used a government jet to fly his bride to Fort Knox to see the gold and the eclipse. Will more heads roll? In fewer than 260 days, Trump has lost 19 people, more than triple the number lost by Obama in the first 260 days of his administration. Again, Price is the second to resign after evidence he'd used his government gig to get richer. 
Trump's regulations advisor, billionaire Carl Icahn, resigned as the investigation heated up into his work in that job, only benefiting the businesses Icahn owns. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly says from now on, nobody in the administration takes a chartered flight without running it by him first. And one more note on EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. The New York Times has uncovered Pruitt's calendar, revealing that he dines often in fine restaurants with executives from oil and coal companies, but does not meet with environmental groups despite his job description of protecting the environment. A coal mining executive with whom Pruitt broke bread also donated $2 million to the Trump campaign. Pruitt has dined with General Motors executives looking to roll back Obama moves to cut the emissions that cause climate change. The Trump EPA defends Pruitt's social calendar, saying he's listening to a sector that was ignored by Obama EPA officials, bending over backward, they say, to hear both sides in the climate change debate. Issues including election laws, government surveillance, and religion, are now before the United States Supreme Court, which reconvened as it does each year on the first Monday in October. Hot-button questions like, should a wedding cake be denied to a gay couple because the baker's religion finds that objectionable? Based on the premise all men are created equal, discrimination is mostly banned in the U.S. But have anti-discrimination laws overstepped their constitutional boundaries when they force a person to act against their religious beliefs? The high court will also ponder whether police can track a person's movements through their cell phone records without a search warrant. Is that unreasonable search as banned by the Constitution? And how much say do courts have in cases involving the changing of voting district boundaries only for political reasons? And can states like New Jersey legalize casino betting on professional sporting events? The Supreme Court will answer these questions and others, mostly in a split between five conservatives, and four liberals. But early indications are the court also thinks the redrawing of voting district boundaries has gone too far, has gotten too political. It appears to be up to Justice Anthony Kennedy, who, although appointed by a Republican, appears to be leaning on the side of the Democratic appointed judges on this. This will be the first full term and first rulings from Trump's nominee Neil Gorsuch, who was able to get the job when Republicans blocked attempts by President Obama to fill the vacancy that occurred during his final term. The Supreme Court won't be hearing the case against Trump's first two Muslim bans. Those have expired, and a new, more carefully crafted ban has replaced them. But now the new ban is also facing legal challenges. The ACLU says it's still a Muslim ban, even if it does this time include travel bans for Venezuela and North Korea. The ACLU and its partner groups have appealed to a federal judge to at least consider an amended lawsuit. The Supreme Court, meanwhile, has given both sides to file new legal briefs outlining in 10 pages or less whether Trump's travel ban is now a moot case. No, an anonymous police officer may not pursue a lawsuit against a social movement. A Baton Rouge cop was trying to sue Black Lives Matter after he was seriously hurt by a rock or brick during a protest over the killing of an unarmed black man, 37-year-old Alton Brown, who was shot to death while pinned to the ground. The officer tried to sue Black Lives Matter and the activist who organized the protest for inciting the violence, arguing they should have known their demonstration would turn violent. He also tried to sue hashtag Black Lives Matter. 
But a federal judge in Louisiana has thrown out the case saying that a hashtag cannot be sued and neither can a social movement. The judge also ruled the officer had failed to show how the activist or the movement had either okayed or organized or endorsed that violence. There are things you need to know about the latest attempt to eliminate legal abortion in the United States. With those things and a commentary, here's Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thanks, Buzz. On Tuesday, the House of Representatives passed a bill that would criminalize all abortions that occur after the 20th week of pregnancy. And today, President Trump signaled that he'd sign the bill if it makes it through the Senate and lands on his desk. But of course, this is a matter of science, which means the Republicans have it completely and stupefyingly wrong. See, the reason they landed on 20 weeks as the cutoff for having an abortion is because they say fetuses are capable of feeling pain at that stage of gestation. Therefore, aborting a 20-week or older fetus is horribly cruel. Hence the title of the bill, the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. Only, human fetuses don't feel pain until around the 27th week of pregnancy. How do I know this? Actual doctors and scientists indicate that the central nervous system isn't developed enough to experience pain until roughly the onset of the third trimester. The Journal of American Medical Association reported, quote, evidence regarding the capacity for fetal pain is limited, but indicates that fetal perception of pain is unlikely before the third trimester or 27 weeks, unquote. Factcheck.org, meanwhile, elaborated on JAMA's findings. Quote, one reason the JAMA review finds early pain perception unlikely is that the connections between the thalamus, a sort of relay center in the brain, and the cortex have not yet formed. This happens between 23 and 30 weeks of gestational age, and the author argues these connections are a precursor for pain perception, unquote. So who should we believe, the leading medical experts in fetal biology or the current president who needed four tries to correctly spell the word hereby? Though I hasten to note that what we believe is irrelevant because we're talking about science here and not faith. Nevertheless, it's probably a safe bet to go with the science on this rather than the misogyny-based whimsy of old cranks who keep passing these pain-capable bills, now the law of the land in 20 states. The national law circulating through Congress right now is additionally pointless given that only around 1.5% of all abortions occur after the 20th week. These late-term abortions are generally sought for harrowing reasons involving severe fetal birth defects or threats to the lives of the pregnant mothers, which case the decision-making that goes into authorizing such procedures is both unenviable and agonizing. Along those lines, there's no exception in the law for severe birth defects, of course, which would be too humane. The exemptions are limited to cases of rape, incest, or threat to the life of the mother. All told, the point isn't the science or the stats. The point is to control women. Pain or no pain, as long as gestation takes place inside women's uteri, women ought to rightfully retain sovereignty over the contents of their internal organs. Likewise, many conservatives believe they enjoy considerable sovereignty over their homes and property. Why is this right not applicable to female reproductive organs? Why is it okay for sovereign citizens to use deadly force to defend their property, but it's not okay for women to retain control over their internal organs? While we're asking serious questions here, why haven't Republicans lifted a finger to make pregnancy and parenting more affordable, thereby mitigating the economic need for abortions? According to the Guttmacher Institute, 75% of all women seeking abortions are considered poor or low income. 
Likewise, in a recent study, the most often cited reason for abortions worldwide is the economic financial factor. In other words, women most often seek abortions because they can't afford to be pregnant and to raise a child. If the conservative goal is to protect fetuses by reducing the number of abortions, it seems like tackling the number one reason for abortions is a common sense way to start. Even better, here's a simple solution. Make pregnancy free. Free medical services, including meds and devices, free sonograms, free amniocentesis tests, free delivery, free postnatal care, and CHIP to cover health care for newborns. We'll circle back to the CHIP program in a second. Medicare for all would be a great path to achieving this goal, but if the Republicans feel the need to narrow the scope, providing the above-listed services for free would be a good start. I mean, if anti-choice conservatives were seriously interested in protecting fetuses, you'd think they'd pursue any legal and or financial solution to that end. You know, for the babies. Yet around the same time the House passed the 20-week abortion ban, Congress allowed CHIP to expire, proving they don't give a flying rip about protecting babies. Two weeks ago, they tried and failed to repeal Obamacare, which, among many other services, provides health care for pregnant women. Again, why the disparity? Why aren't they interested in reducing abortions by perhaps upward of 75%? The why really doesn't matter as much as the reality that Republicans haven't passed a damn thing making pregnancy or motherhood anywhere close to being more affordable. They've only made pregnancy and the need for abortions more inevitable by fighting against affordable and convenient access to birth control while also pushing ludicrous and ineffectual abstinence-only laws. The good news is that the House's abortion ban probably won't make it through the Senate, where the Democrats will likely filibuster, provided Chuck Schumer lassos the so-called pro-life Dems. Incidentally, it'd be nice if Democratic voters, including feminist activists, could put some oomph behind state and local elections to perhaps roll back the existence of fetal pain and targeted regulation of abortion providers, or trap laws, at the state level. The existence of trap and other anti-choice laws is both insulting and confounding, given how conservatives are absolutely shoehorning themselves between patients and doctors, which they otherwise say they hate, while also, one, sidestepping less intrusive affordability-based solutions, and two, completely defying peer-reviewed science. In absence of facts and common sense, it's easy to see the real reason behind these laws. This is about codifying forced birth. This is about making sure that women continue to be walking, talking, gestation pods for God's America. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. I'm honored to be a guest there every week. There is, you should also know, little chance the Senate will pass the 20-week abortion bill lacking the necessary 60 votes and that one of the most outspoken anti-abortion members of the House had urged his mistress to get an abortion. It was already public knowledge in Washington and western Pennsylvania that Republican Tim Murphy had an extramarital affair. This week, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette published text messages in which Murphy told his mistress to get an abortion when she told him she believed she was pregnant. Murphy has a nearly perfect record of voting against a woman's right to choose. Conveniently, the mistress is also a forensic psychologist. And she wrote to Murphy, You have zero issue posting your pro-life stance all over the place when you had no issue asking me to abort our unborn child just last week. Murphy responded, I get what you say about my March for Life messages. I've never written them. Staff does them. I read them and winced. I told staff, don't write anymore. I will. 
That was in January, the same month in which Murphy praised the passage of a House bill to underscore the ban on spending tax dollars to fund abortions or health insurance that covers abortions. Murphy said passage of the bill, quote, gives me great hope that moving forward, we will once again be a nation committed to honoring life from the moment of conception. But since then, at about the time of his urging his mistress to get an abortion, Murphy has not issued a single tweet or news release that even mentions abortion. Although he says he won't run for re-election now, even though it likely wouldn't have hurt his career, Tennessee Republican Scott Desjardins is still on the job in Washington four years after it was revealed that he had asked both his ex-wife and his mistress to get abortions. Those of us following developments in the tense situation with North Korea were surprised on Saturday when Secretary of State Rex Tillerson announced the U.S. was talking to and possibly with the North Korean government. Tillerson stressed that the messages to North Korea were delivered directly, not through China, as might usually be the case. In the wake of cataclysmic threats of war between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, Tillerson's words seemed to be a reason to be optimistic about reason over dangerous taunting. Secretary Tillerson advised reporters to stay tuned to see if the U.S. opened official diplomatic talks with North Korea. Quoting him, we ask, would you like to talk? We have lines of communication to Pyongyang. We're not in a dark or blackout situation. We have a couple or three channels open to Pyongyang, end quote. Tillerson talked about maybe making a deal. That is, after all, his job as Secretary of State to protect U.S. interest by striking bargains. And then came the Sunday morning tweets of Trump. Save your energy, Rex, tweeted Trump. He said Tillerson was, quote, wasting his time. Trump repeated his proudly created nickname for Kim Jong-un, Rocket Man, Little Rocket Man, he added this time for an extra demeaning adjective. And this sidebar, the Associated Press is reporting today that if you have been buying salmon at Walmart or Aldi, you may have been subsidizing North Korea's nuclear missile program. Many Republicans and older Cuban-Americans were opposed to warmer relations between the U.S. and Cuba. Those opposed to the reestablishing of diplomatic relations have now gotten their wish for something a little colder. Secretary of State Tillerson proposed in mid-September that the U.S. Embassy might be shut down in Havana because of mysterious attacks that had injured U.S. citizens there. Now, although the embassy remains officially open, most of our embassy staff in Havana have now been called back home. Only those considered non-essential personnel remain. The FBI says it found nothing when it searched for a variety of devices near the embassy in Cuba that could have caused these illnesses. But future attacks on Americans have to be avoided no matter who's conducted them, so our folks have been brought home. There are brain injuries and nausea and confusion and hearing loss among the 21 victims. Many of them reported hearing a sound that became a suspect in the suspicious symptoms. The FBI was also unable to replicate any ultrasonic devices that might have caused this. Theories also involving poison, biological agents, and electromagnetic waves are still afloat. In surprising and unprecedented cooperation from Cuba's president, Raul Castro had let the FBI search within his country, expressed his surprise about the attacks, and denied Cuba's involvement instead of doing as Cuban leaders traditionally do, condemning the U.S. for even suggesting that Cuba would be involved in such a thing. Raul Castro welcomed the dollars spent by American tourists 
and had the encouragement of Pope Francis to boot to improve relations with the U.S. Despite the unprecedented openness and cooperation from Castro and his desire for improved relations, things have turned sour again. Trump had campaigned, calling the new diplomatic deal with Cuba a terrible and misguided deal. Once elected, he began to dismantle much of what Obama had built into that agreement. Senator Marco Rubio blamed Cuba for not living up to its agreement to protect U.S. embassy personnel in Cuba, just as the U.S. had agreed to protect Cuban officials working here. It is another chance for Trump and the Republicans to undo something Obama did, as they continue to chip away parts of his legacy and erase other parts completely. Our visa process in Havana has been shut down. U.S. citizens have been advised not to travel there, even though no civilians or tourists have been affected. So it came to pass that on Tuesday morning, the U.S. asked Cuba to remove 60% of its diplomatic staff from the United States. Within hours of that, the U.S. expelled 15 people from the Cuban embassy here. The U.S. and Cuba are still having diplomatic talks, but now only on American soil. The only thing keeping that U.S. embassy open in Havana is the nagging sense that Cuba didn't perpetrate the attacks and that it might not have been capable of preventing them. Cuba has not responded well to these decisions, especially after that unprecedented cooperation in the FBI investigation. Like Republicans, Russians, and certainly some rebel forces inside Cuba, would be equally opposed to the grand reopening of the U.S. Embassy in Havana and the increase in trade and tourism between the two countries. Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy says, quote, whoever's doing this is obviously trying to disrupt the normalization process between the United States and Cuba, adding someone or some government is trying to reverse that process. We just don't know yet who or how. We have since learned that most of the Americans attacked in Cuba, the ones attacked first and most severely, were U.S. government spies working there undercover. The CIA and the State Department, which typically cooperate in making such arrangements, have no comment. The U.S. and Cuba have been playing a can-you-top-this version of spy versus spy for decades. But these days, it just doesn't make sense. The loss of Tom Petty. A good use for our liberal tears. Please don't eat the placentas and why your cute little puppy dog might kill you. In the third and final segment, up next. Happy ears is what you'll have when you pop in a brand new pair of earbuds from tweakedaudio.com, especially the new Hegon Sport earbuds with silicone caps to help them stay in place. They're water-resistant with a tangle-free cord and a travel pouch. Now, like the other Tweaked Audio products, the Hegon Sport Buds include an inline mic, a gold-plated plug, and, of course, extra gels. The Hegons are orange and gray, but Tweaked Audio's other earbuds come in a range of colors and materials, including wood. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. And Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed, and the shipping is free anywhere in the world. And because everything does sound better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at TweakedAudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through TweakedAudio.com, the Amazon link on my page, and all my other great sponsors, as well as through the donate button at BuzzBurbank.com. Yahoo! says it now appears that all three billion of its accounts were exposed by the 2013 breach of its systems. That's three times the number of accounts first reported, three years after the actual breach. 
So the affected now includes everyone who had Ymail and all the people who'd signed up for Flickr or Yahoo's Fantasy Sports. The hackers did not get credit card or bank information, but did get names, email addresses, phone numbers, birth dates, encrypted passwords, and the encrypted security questions and their answers. Yahoo is now part of a company called Oath, after being acquired by Verizon and then merging with AOL. Yahoo says it's now taken steps to assure its users' security in the future. Equifax says the data from well over 145 million people was stolen and compromised in its security breach. That data included social security numbers, as well as birth dates and addresses, the kind of information that puts people at risk for identity theft. There is better news for Canada on this, where it was thought as many as 100,000 people had been affected. That number was way off, now only about 8,000, which of course is 8,000 too many. The CEO at Equifax, when it failed to update its security software, is now unemployed, except his career of testifying before four congressional committees, offering an apology, and repeating his offer of free credit locks for life for the affected customers. Since that testimony, Equifax stock is up by a half billion dollars, and it's just won a contract with the IRS for fraud detection. Some lawmakers still believe new government regulations are needed. Equifax had simply failed to update its security software for months and didn't find the breach until a month after it had occurred. The former CEO of Wells Fargo got dragged over the coals in a Senate hearing this week after he admitted that his company had pressured its employees to create millions of fake accounts without the knowledge or approval of the customers to whom those accounts were assigned. The point of the scam, of course, was to boost profits for Wells Fargo through fees their customers never signed up for. Former CEO Tim Sloan saying, I'm deeply sorry and I apologize, were not enough for angry senators from both parties. What in God's name were you thinking, asked Louisiana Republican John Kennedy, adding, I'm not against big. With all due respect, I'm against dumb. At best, you were incompetent, said Massachusetts Democrat Elizabeth Warren. Either way, you should be fired. As a result of Wells Fargo charging people for car insurance they neither needed nor requested, some U.S. soldiers got their cars repossessed. If lawmakers put their motions where their mouths are, Tim Sloan and Wells Fargo haven't heard the last of this. Our friends in Egypt, U.S. allies, are cracking down again on homosexuals. Nearly three dozen people were arrested last month after they carried rainbow flags at a pop concert. We've just learned of this through Amnesty International, which monitors human rights violations around the world. The concert featured a Lebanese band whose lead singer is gay. That band has since been banned by Egypt. Of the 33 flag wavers arrested, all but one are men. All of them received anal exams by authorities. The Egyptian government pursued a criminal case for inciting homosexuality. A day after the concert, a 19-year-old man was arrested for debauchery. He was sentenced last week to six years in prison plus six years probation. Six people were picked up this week for habitual debauchery. A woman has been hit with the same charge, along with the charge of promoting sexual deviancy. Sixteen people are now awaiting trial in Egypt for being gay, even though that in itself is not illegal in Egypt. Someday they will thank us for our liberal tears, 
New laboratory research shows that a chemical found in human tears generates electricity under pressure. A lot of electricity. The chemical lysozyme, which is also found in saliva, milk, and egg white, turns into quartz crystals under pressure. This technology is already being used for mobile phone resonators and the ultrasound equipment used by doctors and other kinds of sensors. These new experiments at Ireland's University of Limerick found the crystals from lysozyme produce a surprising amount of electrical current. Because it's non-toxic, it could be used to power pacemakers and other medical implants, while it's also being used as an infection-fighting coating for the devices themselves. And it does not produce poisonous lead as other crystals of its type do. You can read more about it when your copy of the journal Applied Physics Letters arrives in the mail. Just under half of us get a flu shot each year, even though influenza kills thousands of Americans each year and tens of thousands in some years. And it's contagious, increasing the odds that someone who didn't get vaccinated will get it from someone else who also didn't get vaccinated. And staying home once you feel fluish won't help because you're contagious 24 hours before you feel sick and you remain contagious for up to seven days beyond that moment you realize you have the flu. And more than half of us don't get vaccinated for reasons that vary from their own bad reactions to the vaccine, which is very real, to politics and superstition. But now there's a new protein in town. Scientists at the University of Maryland have found that a protein, Retrocyclin 101 or RC101, that greatly reduces the deadliness of the flu while also greatly reducing the symptoms. We've yet to learn if it reduces contagion, but this is a breakthrough for those who can't or won't get a flu shot. It's also another tool in our toolbox for fighting the flu. E-cigarettes may be a good thing after all for adult smokers who switch. The verdict has been out on e-cigarettes, but cancer researchers at Georgetown have now completed the most definitive study so far. They found that tobacco use is down to 16% in the U.S. and seems stuck there. They found that switching more people to e-cigarettes could take it down to 5%. The study shows that the use of e-cigarettes could, in fact, reduce tobacco use. Granted, users would still be feeding an addiction to habit and nicotine, but in what this study says is a much, much safer way. And vapors, they say, are far more likely to walk away from those addictions. People using e-cigarettes are not exposed to the chemicals and carcinogens created by burning tobacco. The study found that the patch and the gum and the lozenges are not as satisfying to smokers, but that the e-cigarette is making it more likely that e-cigarette users won't go back to traditional cigarettes. But with e-cigarettes still unregulated by the FDA, and researchers say that as long as that's the case, it'll be next to impossible to devise a workable strategy for getting smokers to switch. The FDA says it's begun looking at this seriously. In the meantime, the Georgetown study says that with a strategy, we could extend the lives of over 6.5 million smokers by nearly 87 million years. By the way, you're going to start seeing cigarette ads on TV again soon, but they are not at all like the ads from vintage television. They won't be at all flashy, no animation, no pictures or graphics, even just words on the screen read aloud by a narrator. They will look like those disclosure statements in pharmaceutical ads as part of the settlement in a Justice Department lawsuit from 18 years ago 
Two tobacco companies will now run 30-second ads in prime time five days a week on one or all of the big three broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. The ads will warn of the addiction, the health risks to the smoker and those around them. They'll explain there is no health benefit to a low-tar or light cigarette. The companies will admit they use design technology to make sure that the smoker gets the most nicotine a cigarette can deliver. The ads will be blunt with the words, more people die every year from smoking than from murder, AIDS, suicide, drugs, car crashes, and alcohol combined. These two tobacco companies, two of the biggest, have to say this to get out from under that 1990s lawsuit. One of the companies is Altria, which makes the biggest brand, Marlboro, and also Virginia Slims. The other company settling this government suit is British American Tobacco, which makes Lucky Strike and Kent. The other big tobacco companies, not part of the lawsuit or the ad, are Philip Morris, Imperial Brands, and Japan Tobacco. Your sweet and adorable puppy dogs, meanwhile, may kill you or at least make you very, very sick. Specifically, the danger is in the puppy poop, which currently is transmitting to humans a bacterial infection. So far, no one has died from it, but the symptoms are awful. Diarrhea, so bad it's sometimes bloody, along with abdominal pain and cramping. And then there's the fever as the body tries unsuccessfully to burn out the infection. This goes on for about a week. It's actually one of the more common causes of diarrhea in the U.S. every year. This just happens to be an outbreak that's put more than 55 people into hospitals in a dozen states. That's nearly double the number of just three weeks ago, and that number is growing. And doctors say it can be life-threatening. This is where the S literally gets real. The Centers for Disease Control is on it. The Campylobacter bug spread from a national chain of pet stores, Petland. CDC says Petland is cooperating with health officials in addressing the outbreak if, for no other reason, Petland employees make up most of the victims. But puppy purchasers got it, too, along with friends and families who then petted the puppy, some who just happened to be shopping at Petland, and others. The outbreak spans from as far east as New Hampshire and Florida, across the Midwest, and as far west as Wyoming. The CDC is urging puppy parents to wash their hands after handling the dogs, their food, or their poop. If they go in the yard, pick that up with something and then wash your hands. And call the vet if the puppy appears to be ill. I'll keep you posted on the puppy poop plague. Mothers, don't eat your placentas. Over the years, says a New York OBGYN, we've had an increasing demand from patients who wanted to take their placenta home after delivery in order to eat it. Many animals do exactly that, but humans have traditionally thrown it away. The only culture on earth that eats placenta is upper-class women, often inspired by celebrities. But research shows that placenta is an organ that not only transfers oxygen and nutrients to the fetus, but also filters and collects toxins to keep them from the fetus. So a placenta may be loaded with toxins, not the best thing to eat, perhaps. The researchers are now telling doctors to tell their patients, quote, it's potentially harmful and there's no evidence it's beneficial, so don't do it. Doctors and hospitals are grateful for this advice since many of them weren't sure how to handle placenta requests. Now they have a basis for policy. And there is now a cottage industry, however, for women who want to eat their placentas, women who believe that's a healthy thing to do. Some of them eat it raw. Others cook them in various ways. 
A number of companies offer placenta preparation. For two to 400 bucks, they will turn it into capsules. But in June, the CDC warned about a case of infection from those capsules. And now this new study of eating placentas in any form, don't do it. Stephen King's Killer Clown was back on top at North American theaters over the weekend, dragging in another $17 million. It was the number one choice for two weeks straight, took a week off, and returned to the top spot over the weekend. Passings and Passages Eager to spend time with his granddaughter, Tom Petty would not have been amused at dying at age 66. He would have likely been amused about the confusion that surrounded his death. After a tour that Petty said would be his last to spend more time with his family, Florida's own Tom Petty suffered a heart attack at his home in Malibu, California. The reports of this beloved musician's death came hours before his official passing, depending to a degree on your definition of death. He was non-responsive, on life support and then off it, no brain activity, a chaplain had been called to his bedside, and then the LAPD confirmed Tom Petty had died. His daughter, understandably, angrily insisted that her father was not dead and slammed Rolling Stone and other news outlets for reporting that he was. Just hours after his death had been reported, Tom Petty really truly died. He was a musician respected by musicians, a multiple Grammy winner and a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. There were condolences from Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger, Brian Wilson, Bob Dylan. Tom Petty was important at my house and still is. He is gone too soon, but remembered forever with song after song after song. And news organizations learned two big lessons on the chaotic day that Tom Betty died, the day of the mass killing in Vegas. First and foremost, get at least two reliable confirmations, official confirmations before reporting something. And they learned, as Tom had said in a song, you can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. There were a lot of jokes on social media after the death of game show host Monty Hall at age 96. That's understandable considering the silly nature of the show he co-created and hosted for over 40 years. But the game made Monty rich and he shared his wealth. After he left his hosting job, he spent 200 days every year raising money for charity and giving generously himself. He raised over a billion dollars for charity. He was the celebrity who flew to Kansas in the 1970s to raise money after a plane crash killed the Wichita State University basketball team. When a People magazine reporter asked him if the phrase, let's make a deal, would be his epitaph, he replied, you put that on my headstone and I'll kill you. A 45-foot statue of a nude woman will stand alongside the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. starting next month if organizers can raise enough money to move it there. The National Park Service has already granted permission for the statue to go up and remain on the National Mall for four months as a symbol of the strength of women and the struggle for equal rights. A vigil would take place at the foot of that statue around the clock every day for the entire four months as supporters continue to campaign for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment for Women, an effort launched in 1923. No, you may not use the head of a panda costume as a motorcycle helmet in jurisdictions where a helmet is required. Police in Minnesota have cited a man for driving his bike without a helmet. The man was wearing a complete panda costume, complete with a big round head. Police stopped him, concerned about his weaving through traffic, sometimes without his paws, hands on the handlebars. 
They were also concerned about his limited visibility. They could see him just fine, but in that big round head, he had no peripheral vision, creating a hazard for himself and others. The bike bear said he was hoping his motorcycle riding panda video would go viral. The state police video did, along with a warning that this wouldn't be okay, even on Halloween, which is still weeks away. The video is captioned, so many questions. In England, a grandfather's headstone remains blank because the town council won't let him have the epitaph he wanted. The town council says the man's inscription would have contained inappropriate language. The phrase he wanted was, little bugger did his best. And finally, there's monkeys here. I'm not lying. Those are the words of a neighbor in Lebanon, Ohio, who's one of several people who keep seeing monkeys on the loose. There have been multiple monkey sightings of multiple monkeys just in the past few weeks. The monkeys are either escaped or abandoned pets, apparently. Animal rescuers are standing by. The last time there was a monkey on the loose in Ohio was a little over a year ago when a Walmart employee was videoed tussling with a monkey in the parking lot after it had escaped from a camper in that parking lot. The present-day monkeys hang out in trees, mostly. One of them has been spotted dancing. Quoting our eyewitness, this guy played music and the monkey was rocking back and forth to it. The monkeys haven't attacked any people or stolen any bananas, but they are making people nervous, including one man who says, it's like the squirrels are even acting a little funny around here. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.